0: Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny Podcast. This is your co-host, Stephen Spector, and with me, as usual, is Rob Hirschfeld. Hello, Rob. Stephen, good morning. So this is our first uh, podcast from the the infamous lockdowns happening everywhere. So uh, I wanted to let you know that I have bubble wrap to my house, so uh, nothing can get uh, in to affect me, right? Bubble wrap is what you need for all things?
1: That makes sense. Was that just a rumor? Air bubble around you. I thought toilet paper was the cure. Well, I can't get
0: anything. toilet paper, so I had to air. I had to air. I had plastic wrap. <laughs> as long as you're using it on
1: your house, I think yes,
0: it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, hopefully, if you're listening, we'll give you a half hour to think about uh, technology and not everything else going around. The COVID, uh, COVID
1: free zone.
0: COVID free zone. Yes, and we have. I'm very excited. A uh, new guest for us, as we've been talking about this year, getting a lot of uh, new companies, new people. We have the uh, co-founder and CTO of OverOps, Tao Weiss with us. Tao, good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon, guys, Rob, Steve. It's awesome to um, be here on this lockdown um, day, so I'm just happy to be here and hopefully have a good chat and help folks pass the time.
0: Yeah, and, and I'll just say to our listeners, because we're all at home locked down, there may be more dogs than usual, so um, that's just, you know, if you hear more dogs, that's, that's acceptable now in our podcast, <laughs> although we've it always had a barking. It's, it's, <laughs> so it's not a change in status. But if, but if Tal's dog jumps in, it's very exciting. We have a new dog. Well, Tal, can you just give us a quick background about yourself and a little bit about your company, and then we can uh, dig into talk technology.
2: For sure. So um, I, founder of CTO at um, OverOps, been in uh, tech and loving it for the past um, 20 years. Uh, started my career back home. This is in Israel and Tel Aviv and uh, military intelligence. Did a bunch of interesting work there, then went on to work on um, aerospace projects for a good number of years. Um, it was a great ride there. And based on a lot of the learnings and insights gained from those years, started uh, my first company, Visual Tao, which enabled designers, engineers to edit and collaborate over 2D, 3D content from anywhere in the world. For, so that was cool. If you're like a silver engineer working on oil pipes, I'm in Alaska, be able to make changes to a model. Folks will see that. And um, that was a cool company. And after that I got sold, uh, through a lot of the pain points and challenges of scaling that technology and bringing that to market, uh, the team and I kind of came up with the idea for um, OverOps, so we kind of got that going, and that's also been an amazing ride. So um, that's kind of uh, me in a nutshell.
1: And what does OverOps do? I'm super curious about about the some of the concepts that I see on the website. I'd love to have you explain, you know, sort of a generalized aspect.
2: Oh, well, for sure. So what we saw when we we're deploying so kind of going back a bit kind of going one step back we go two steps forward uh that first company we had sold it and it became uh something called autocad web and mobile And that's a pretty big name kind of design engineering industry and what we did is we took a service that has been around for 20 plus years on servers on desktops and we made that globally available through cloud and mobile platforms and it was through the pain points of ch- and challenges of scaling that to an audience of kind of 20 million plus professional designers and engineers but we came up to the idea of OverOps, and what we saw is we were pretty early on on using things like amazon and aws and bringing software to the cloud which is pretty darn mainstream nowadays right uh, and what we saw was that um you know during the 2000 even during the 2010s so much of the focus and the core and the bulk where companies would invest was a lot of our like hardware. You know, the thing that differentiated a company that was a strong incumbent, you know, from an upcoming startup was the fact that it had these massive data centers, like you know, banks, you know, and financial folks in the financial industry had these multi billion dollar uh, data centers and these huge investments in infrastructure that were this formidable barrier to entry for any other startup who wanted to get into those spaces. And then Platforms like AWS, and then um, later on uh, Azure and the GCP, and a bunch of them really changed that, so that even us as a, as a startup or as a kind of upcoming business unit in a much larger corporation, were for the first time able to leverage you know software APIs to gain access to massive, almost infinite amounts of compute power, and almost in, a, in you know in one fell swoop, almost kind of eliminate that uh, differentiator and what we saw and that's kind of led us to the idea of overops is that over time, the thing that's going to differentiate winners from losers in our economy is no longer going to be kind of, as say, kind of around the hardware. so much going to be around who has the best software and who can write the best code. And even when we look at companies, you know, like Amazon, which is, you know, depending on the day, the world's biggest company, you know, the thing that made them so, Epically successful was the fact that they had much better software than any other e commerce company. And what, overall, specifically, what we saw is that the tooling that we have to operate and monitor code in staging and production, that tool set will need to be revamped, almost reimagined from this, for this new era, if you will, where the focus is going to be so much about understanding code and how can we leverage things like machine learning and artificial and artificial intelligence to really be able to optimize and enhance the way by which we deliver better code to our customers. So that is kind of our mission. I'm happy to kind of double click, zoom in, zoom out. But that is really at the core what we do. We enable our customers to deliver much better code. Our users deliver much better code to their users and create as so a result.
1: So is, is that delivered as a Pipeline? So, you know, when you're saying deliver better code, there's a couple of places that you could be doing that, right? You could be libraries that improve productivity. You could be a part of a CI pipeline or adding in components for a pipeline. How is, how is, how do you deliver an improved code output?
2: Awesome. So um, what we do is when you look in and you mentioned CI and CD, and that's exactly kind of where our focus, because what we saw is if you look at tools such as, you know, jenkins and kubernetes right they've dramatically transformed the way by which we deliver software if you're a build automation engineer that went captain america style into cry hibernation like 10 years ago and you woke up today you wouldn't know the world that you're in right you can deploy code to thousands of nodes with a click of a button right and the same with pipelines like jenkins and all the other folks in that space so the way what we do is we say all right you now have the ability to deploy code at mass scale into using those pipelines. What we want to do is introduce the concept from CI to CD to what we call CR, which is continuous reliability, meaning you deploy your code, you execute it in your staging, your user acceptance testing, on your production environment, and then we're able to tell you whether or not that code is actually better, worse, or the same in terms of its reliability, quality, if you will, compared to how it was yesterday. So it's applying machine learning and deep artificial understanding of how the code executes to be able to tell you, hey, with this release, you broke X, without, requiring, without putting this huge onus on developers to have the foresight, to log everything, to write all the unit testing. So we're incorporating kind of AI, if you will, to something that up until now, has been completely manual driven by humans.
0: So, so let me ask a question, I'm sorry if you said this, just make sure I understand. When does this happen? So if I'm a developer at my desk writing code and I compile and put it back into the tree so to example, is it run then or does it run when when the production team says here's our next version or something? At which so, stage does it run?
2: So sure you deploy your code, right, you, you commit it into your GitHub and your source code repository and then essentially that code's beginning executing, right? It starts moving through the pipeline, you know, from from staging to UET to production. At each stage, at each stage of that software delivery lifecycle, OverOps inspects the execution. What we do is we analyze the execution of your code at runtime. So we're not doing when you're compiling the code. We're actually ex- analyzing the code as it's executing. Because by understanding both the structure, the inherent DNA of the code itself and its behavior at runtime and creating baselines that we can then compare against, we can tell you, hey, today's release uh, in this environment introduced two critical bugs that weren't there yesterday and that you as a developer, sadly, could not have had the foresight of the ability to know about in advance. (coughs) And instead of promoting that into production or potentially impacting users, the AI can actually... See, hey, this is an anomaly. Here's all the information that you, the developer, will need in order to resolve it, and also I can prevent it by integrating into the CI/CD pipeline that kind of bad code from infecting or impacting your um, the rest of your environment. Right.
1: So, so I mean, either that means you have a you're working with an integration test suite to create the load, or you're actually monitoring production code that's been released. Where how do you how do you stimulate the code base in order to detect that there are problems
2: so we don't stimulate the code base we use your existing stimulus and that's why we run using both your synthetic stimulus which is your unit testing then your internal user acceptance testing and then your production essentially we look at your load and we say hey you've been able to you know foresee 50% of the issues you know using your, your intelligence your foresight Using machine learning and AI, we can actually foresee, we can actually detect, we can actually detect all um, the rest. So, and we do this from the second you start running your code in dev, all the way into uh, production. Everything that
1: you could not see, we see. Interesting. And then is this something that is like compiled into the runtimes that you build? How do you, how do you put the metricing into the system?
2: Yeah, so... There's three things that we kind of vowed to do when we uh, when we started the company, and we said if we can't achieve those three goals, then this company is not worth uh, us doing. Which is the first relates exactly to kind of what you talked about. We don't require our users to change the way they code or to change the way they build their code, and the other two have with the, an the other to deal with you no. Know, it must be secure and must be super fast. But the first one was, the way we do it does not require users to change the code. We integrate into the software virtual machine itself, being the, be it like, you know, right now we support now the Oracle JVM, the IBM JVM, and the Microsoft CLR. So we integrate into those components and we operate between them, the interface between them and the actual processor. So as your code is executing and it's feeding information into the hardware, we analyze its behavior. We create this 3D graph, if you will, of your entire code running across a complete Kubernetes cluster, for, uh, for example. And then we can analyze the behaviors and the dynamics within it. And for example, if you introduce an issue in a certain point, we can pinpoint, we can locate it, core that into the graph and say, hey, this thing is new. This thing is critical. This thing is impactful. And as a result, take actions, capture information, block it from being deployed and a bunch of other stuff.
1: Wow, interesting. That makes sense. So from that perspective, what you've really been able to do is, you know, uh, and and your website uses the word fingerprinting. I guess that makes sense. So you're saying this is what the application looks like with fingerprinting. And then AI tells you that that's a normal fingerprint and anomalies are going to be detected. And, And so is there an overhead from that? How much, you know, it's a valuable thing. How much, how much cost is there from that perspective?
2: Sure. So as I said, the three, the, the three key principles under which we, we said, if we can not make these three happens, it ain't worth it. Right. We talked about changing the code. The second, it must be fast. Now the way to do this is by offloading all that computation work, all that fingerprinting, all that code analysis away from the production of the, or, or the testing nodes themselves. So the way that this works is every time a user loads code, right, let's say you deploy today into this environment, version 1.445 of this microservice release candidate, right? You put that artifact, that, um, that code artifact is loaded into the software virtual machines, those JVMs, the .NET CLRs running within that cluster. And what we do, we fingerprint them and we say, okay, Is this code that we know that you've already analyzed or is this new code? In the case of this artifact, there's gonna be new code because you just wrote it yesterday. At that point, we send that off for analysis in the background, but the actual production node is not impacted by all of this. The actual production node um, sends that information and then the graph and all that analysis is happening in the background. And that enables us, that offloading, that enables us to um, enable our users to operate this in some of the world's most um, demanding production environments. You know, if you look at customers like, you know, users, banks, media, telco, all these guys, they can use this at record-breaking speeds.
1: Makes sense. And, and would you, could you potentially do like an a AB or a Stripe test and say, you know, I'll put this on systems or I'll, you know, you could actually turn it on and off if you want it to, to pull back, or is it just not a factor and the more data you get, the better? You can, you can,
2: but most customers essentially, you know, who use this us don't really have to do that, but you have a full set of you have APIs and REST APIs and control switches um, to, um, to do that. But usually folks, after they've kind of gotten com- comfortable with the tech, they would just run it continuously uh, across their uh, pipeline.
1: Interesting. And then, so from that perspective, the Overops platform is there's a part of it. That's this, the code analysis piece, but I'm assuming there's a ton of graphing and data and insights that come with that. Is that, is that something that's part of a SaaS offering or do you sell that as a product that goes with your, your platform?
2: So um, in terms of how the platform is structured, you can use OverOps. um, you know, you can use our SaaS backend or you can use the platform or you can deploy the full platform uh, within your environment, which is more relevant to like financial institutions and, and the like. Um, so you can, use it in, you can use it in both flavors and you can even use a third flavor, it's called hybrid, which means all the information that we, can, that we collect remains on your cloud, but all the mass compute, all the mass compute operations happen on our cloud. So it's kind of have the best of both worlds.
1: Interesting. Is there, is there PII data that surfaces out of this type of analysis? Is, that, sure. a, is that a concern? Okay.
2: It, it's, it's actually, but it, that's actually where the code analysis itself, an interesting point um, that we can make. So let's take for example, logging, right? Which we have all used since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. So for example, let's say I have a developer that uh, accidentally logs, even at debug level verbosity. so it may not necessarily happen in production, you know, a username, right? The word uh, Rob or Tal or Steve or Dan, right? They emit that to the log file. They send that to their log analyzer. That is a massive PII breach. If you remember like Twitter a couple years ago, a developer did that and they had to ask 300 million users to change all their passwords right? Because the challenge is that no log analyzer can know that the word Steven, Steve, Dan, Tao, Rob, right? Are PII sensitive. So once it's in the log, again, it's, 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 it's you know, toothpaste out of, is, is, is out and there's no pulling it back. And this is where Roblox box does something interesting okay. because we are there at the point of execution, the point uh, as, as the code is executing. And because we've analyzed the code, we know that this word, Stephen, came from a variable called username. We actually understand the metadata, the symbology of the code. So we can actually redact at those levels, which is something pretty unique. So that's how, you know, we have customers in healthcare and, um, you know, in and, and media and whatever sector you name it, they're using this because of this ability to redact PII for HIPAA compliancy, now, not just based on specific regex pattern on data, but actually based on the metadata itself. Um, right. so they're using us even in SAS architectures. And for those who are, who are from, for regulatory reasons, are unable to do that, they can use us. They can just deploy the system completely behind their firewall.
1: That's fascinating. I, I think people underestimate what the PII implications are of a lot of log analysis and even observability, uh, challenges uh, that, you know, you're sending a lot of data to a lot of people. And that's why I I like to ask the question because we need to think about this as we build applications. Um, you know, the developers should be vigilant so that they're not leaking, but you know, it's the, the consumers, you know, we have the same, same challenge. We, we're not a SaaS, but we don't want log shipped to us that has potentially PII data. You can't unsee something, um, from, from a PII perspective.
0: Oh, for sure.
1: Um that's fascinating. So when when you look at this, I'm I'm interested in since I mentioned observability, um you you it's not something that you've been it's not a word you've been using. Um it's certainly a, a nice buzz buzzword in, in industry. How would you compare what you do to the observability trend of the last uh year or two? So I think so up until now I kind of spoke. We have
2: kind of two two key core capabilities to the platform. And uh, just going back for a second to, you know, what you said about PII before we go into this, because I think it's a really, really fascinating point. You know, a lot of the time, even the developers themselves don't really know what they're logging in the sense that they get some data structure, right? And they just log it, an object, right? And the, the object parses itself into a string. And they may not have even been the ones who have written, right, that object. They get an array and they just log it as far as some payload. For debugging purposes, and that may have PII in it, so a lot of the time it's like developers can't even foresee what they're going to get and they will generate a PIi leak so it's a very very important point uh, and places companies under a lot of risk and, and, and liability risk, and you know that's kind of they're in between a rock and a hard place they have to log every yeah. time they log they risk they run the risk of you know uh, putting something out which they shouldn't.
1: Um, that's right. No, with, with the compliance regulations that are coming in and the right to be forgotten, you might end up, you know, having a very tricky situation of trying to remove user information from logs. Um, even that you don't know is, is in logs. Um, yeah. And it
2: it becomes, then, then it really becomes, you know, just like emptying an ocean with a teaspoon. So (laughs) moving, going back to, uh, no observability. So, so there's two kind of things that we focus on. One is the ability to kind of detect new issues, which is kind of the continuous reliability aspect of it. Meaning, deploy the release, and when it's part of your Jenkins report, you know here's also um, you know the quality report for this application for this microservice. The second thing is the ability to actually deduplicate event data at scale. So, if you take, for example, you know, log files, one of the biggest challenges with logging is if I were to give you a log file, even a really good one, you know, and I would tell you, hey, it's got a billion log lines in it. Can you tell me, you know, how much unique discrete statements are in that uh, log file right now? Can you deduplicate that for me so I can then feed that into my uh, metrics hub, and I can observe it and I can run anomaly detection on it, right? most developers would tell you that it's, it's virtually impossible because you've got an ocean of unstructured text and to deduplicate that without any schema and without you essentially telling the log analyzers a specific actual pattern template for each one of those hundreds of different, you know, logging locations that you may not probably don't even know where they're coming <laughs> from. It's impossible. It's, it's mathematically impossible.
1: And yet, yet there's a whole industry dedicated to exactly that. I agree with you on the challenge.
2: So, we actually have a very, very interesting, I think pretty novel approach to it. Because what we do is, it all goes back to fingerprinting. So, let's say, for example, I have um, a line in my code that's logging some statement with some information. OverOps is there at the point of execution. That we operate between the software and the processor. So we know you're logging, and we know exactly when you're kind of co graph, we, we know exactly the unique identity of that logging statement. So for us, it's not a string. We're, there, we're like, this is location X, Y, and Z that's logging. So we can actually, even in memory, increase a counter. So we can automatically deduplicate all logging statements coming from an app and convert them into metrics which we can then feed into whatever, into our database or into your database and enable you to do much more sophisticated anomaly detection without ever, ever having to parse through text. That's the beauty of it because when you're trying to reverse engineer a text file into metrics, virtually impossible. But at the point of logging, if you know, hey, this specific location in the code has this specific identity, this is the release, this is the line of code, this is the method, this is the classes or such where it's coming from. You assign it its own identity, then you just essentially start running counters on which ones of those identities. And then tell users, hey, this location, this specific fingerprint, since you've released that deployment, since you've released that version yesterday, is acting completely anomalous. And that's uh, I think a really Mm -hmm. big step for like DevOps SRE folks who are looking to do anomaly detection in production nowadays, and are kind of drowning in that noise.
1: That's a really interesting. So, one of the things that is inherent in your assumption that is worth pointing out, um, and is really common, is that the developers and are are often making changes to the code. They don't know what the performance impact of that change is going to be, and it's two different teams. It's not like the person who's seeing the anomaly in the operational side is aware that something changed that had it had an impact. And so there is a significant amount of time in an operational mode, or this is actually true from a, you know, if you're writing code and selling it and shipping it to customers, the same thing could be true. I'm interested in that model in a minute. Um, but it's, you know, in that case, you're like, all right, I, something, I know something changed in this code is creating anomalous behavior. That can be a really powerful thing to pinpoint. Um, What's going on? Because small changes can make huge impacts.
2: Yeah. For example, you know, DevOps, DevOps folks and SREs—they are usually mostly looking at kind of um, lagging indicators such as CPU, disk, I/O, right? To kind of assess the overall mm-hmm. health of um, an application. So for them to, to essentially backtrace and to say backtrack and say, "Oh, actually, the increase that we're seeing in CPU usage right now." is stemming from exchanging the code made by this developer on this team four days ago is a very, very uh, hard challenge for them to do nowadays. Yeah. So when things do, when things do start essentially um, acting poorly, and essentially the system, system essentially start uh, malfunctioning, that journey back to the developer nowadays is actually very, very hard to do. And the reason is that even if a developer log the specific error, right? There's some form of like unexpected condition and they have logging for it. The DevOps folks, the DevOps and the SRE folks don't even know to look for it. They're not the ones who wrote that log. They don't know how to write for it. And there's nothing telling them, Hey, since this version was released three days ago, this specific error is spiking. Right. And so they have to essentially perform that process. Manually today and you can see even in these past few weeks, you know, a lot of companies, you know How long it takes or even like the best companies when something do happen Especially in kind of the volatile times that we live in how long it takes them to get things back to in order
1: Right, and I I think it's easy to underestimate how important that is in part because some of it is developer freshness of experience, right if if you can catch a, a, a change the developer made you know, in the same day that they made it, then they're fresh. They probably have the code up. If it waits a day or two, it's okay. If it crosses a weekend boundary or, or something like that, then all of a sudden, especially if it's, you know, if they're not, they're not active in the code, the fix and understanding the fix is going to take cognitively a lot more time um, to do that. And so there, there's, it's that expanding, right? The sooner you cast your test, there's an exponential increase in the cost to fix it Well, you're, sort of doing is reducing that exponential growth with
2: this. Yeah, I actually had a conversation with uh, uh, a good friend He works at one of the um, large credit card um, management issuing companies essentially, and he said, look, I I deploy software, Mm -hmm. right? For the first 24 hours from from when we deploy release, I'm like, it's full, like I'm 100% on it. I'm like a hawk. I'm looking at the system, everything. I'm making calls to folks, check that everything is okay. That's the first 24 hours. Uh, no, in the next, you know, 24 to 48 hours, you know, it's kind of like, it's code. It's like orange. It's like, uh, it's orange. No longer code red. It's orange, right? And he says, after 72 hours, it's not me. <laughs> you know, after 72 hours, if you, uh, I automatically, whatever it happens, it's not my fault. Now, Houston kind of, that, he kind of said that jokingly, but that's usually kind of the state of mind with which we usually deploy software. We kind of deploy it. We kind of go, uh, we kind of see, okay, am I good? Am I good? Am I good? And, you know, if 48 hours pass, which 48 to 72 hours pass, which is usually the industry-wise kind of that waterline mark. Yeah. After that, I'm okay. And things do break down because a lot of the time, you know, reality and users are not as courteous as to let us know that we broke things, you know, within that synthetic seventy two to our window, then essentially it's exactly like what you said. It becomes this hard challenge to go back and to find the exact team. And it becomes
1: much worse if multiple teams are deploying concurrently. Yeah. Yeah, because then you're gonna have interacting. Are you able to recreate the stimulation components from that perspective? Because the other thing I know, in cases like that is it can be very hard to know what triggered a bug from that. You that know, what we would call the Eisen bug. Yep. Um, yep. Do you so, have, do you have a solution that helps with that or.
2: So th- we have, so we have, you know, we always talk about over up to do kind of three key things. We help folks identify and that's kind of what we talked about through the fingerprinting and the deduplication we help them prevent, which is once we see those fingerprints, uh, then you know we can hook up into their CI/CD pipeline, for example, until tell Jenkins, say hey, this version looks kind of funky, block that, or even in production, because folks usually will deploy to, you know, they'll deploy to this pod in their Kubernetes cluster, and then they'll essentially start expanding out into this region. We'll say, oh, you deployed, you know, to five percent of your stake. And uh, things are not looking as good as you would want them to, so we'll block that from progressing. But the third capability is exactly what you just um, asked for, which is resolve. How can we help folks not just know that something happened and prevent it from impacting, but also provide them with information that they would need in order to resolve it? And that's another cool aspect that stems from the architect for the architecture of, of how the technology was designed, which is because we are there. At the point of event, right? A log file, like a log analyzer, you can go to your, like, your favorite log analyzer, no matter how much money, effort, time, and love you spend into it, and say, hey, this error here is important, but I, the developer, don't understand why this is happening in production. Like, I've never seen the system do this, you know, make this produce a specific error in any of our staging environment. There's something in the environment, there's something in that state, you know, that Heisen thing. You know, I don't know what's causing. You can't go to your log analyzer and tell, hey, can you give me more information about this? Right? The log analyzer will tell you, well, this is your log. I don't even know what it says. I don't even know what it means. To me, it's just text. So, overops, because it is there between the software and the processor at the point of event, and because it is able to say, hey, this fingerprint is either new or it's part of an unexplained spike. Let's capture everything that's relevant, you know, to that developer, to that DevOps person at the point of event. The code that was executing, the variable state, the debug level log statements, and not necessarily even hit the log file on disk in production, and the actual state of that node or that container. Encapsulate that as a smart object and then make that available to them even as part of a Jira ticket. So when developers are notified that, hey, overall detected anomaly, it's not just a detected anomaly, good luck. It's actually a detected anomaly, and here's a reprodu- an automatic reproduction, recreation of the state of the code and the environment, that uh, intersection between the hardware and the software, that is really what the developers usually need in order to reproduce, to debug, and to understand why this thing is happening here and did not happen on their, within their local
1: environment. Wow, that's really cool. That's, I can see that would be useful. So, I mean, I could see that also from like a most of our conversation has sort of assumed that you had one team and it was a SAS or a website or something, something that you controlled dev to production. Is this something that you also see useful for people with a product where you're writing a product, you deliver it into the field and, you know, you can't get the log, you know, you, you can't log, you can't, you can't connect to it. You just have to have a customer's like, Oh, here's my, problem report would you would you include a signature dump from that perspective how would that work
2: yeah no that's that, that that's that's a great question so when we started the platform first phase one was SaaS, meaning you have to use our cluster our uh our environment to um consume ops then we matured that and then we say okay now we we'll introduce this hybrid thing which we talked about you know kind of and then this the third thing we kind of uh introduced was um, full blown on premise where you can run it on your environment. The next thing kind of what we're looking at is kind of phase four. You can also run it on your customer's environment. So we've kind of started from SaaS, which is kind of where we were born on Amazon and we are kind of covering all the different use cases. And so now we have three out of four, but that fourth one of, Hey, you know, you're deploying your software to your customer's own production environment and you want to deploy over ops there and have it capture that information. And then you can go in it as needed is actually something we're hearing from a lot of our users and something that's uh really big kind of our of where we're going. So
0: yep well Tal, this is uh Steven coming in as wait I was always, a bit
1: about to write a check.
0: Damn no, it. as I always come around <laughs> the 30 minutes well if you want to write a check that's separate from the uh, podcast. Um but I think this is really cool technology to I, I like it a lot and to our listeners hopefully you liked uh, what we uh, presented to you guys today. I think, uh, like we said, we're going to keep finding new and interesting things. And uh, Tal's company is really, I think it's really cool. I mean, you always think about this. Someone was going to do it someday. And, and the way they've tied it in with DevOps is clearly makes the most sense. So Tal, if someone wants more information, uh, go to your website. Are you on Twitter or anything like that?
2: Yep, yep. So hit us up on Twitter and social media, OverOps. I'm there. I blog a lot on our blog, blog at overops.com. We publish a lot of our research and our work with um, customers. And a lot of things that we're seeing that are either are related to our work or just interesting things we're seeing that our customers do and interesting work and research around the way people code and all the good stuff. That's up on our blog. And, of course, for the website, it's, um, it's overops.com. So just hit us up.
0: Great. And uh, to our listeners, if, uh, to Tal, actually, I'm sorry, Tal, if you guys come up uh, next couple months and you uh, release something new or there's something interesting you want to talk about, just reach out to Rob myself. We'd super appreciate having you back on. Uh, this was really good, unique content, and uh, I'm glad we were able to track you down. Rob and Tal, thanks again for uh, joining us today.